to Nonprofit Lowdown. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Rhea Wong. In this podcast, I recommend a book, tool, tip, podcast, or resource that has helped me to build a multi-million dollar nonprofit organization. I've done the research, so you don't have to. Let's get started. Hey, podcast listeners, it's Rhea Wong with you once again with Nonprofit Lowdown. Today, my guest is Carla Monteroso, CEO of Code 2040, and today we're going to talk all about the things particularly folks of color in tech and leveling that playing field. So welcome, Carla. Hi, nice to meet you, Ria. So Carla, tell me a little bit about yourself and what is it that y'all do at Code 2040? Yeah, so I'll start with Code 2040 first. Code 2040 exists because we want proportional representation of Black and Latinx people in tech. We come at this from a place of knowing that high-wage work in America has actually never been integrated racially. And we think tech is our best shot at really trying to fix that because of the amount, its relationship to risk, disruption, innovation, the huge amount of capital swirling around it, and its desperate need for workers. And so we have been doing this work since 2012 and really focused now on the structural barriers to entry, participation, and leadership for Black and Latinx people particularly. And for myself, I have been in the nonprofit world my entire life, the first nonprofit I worked for, I was 18. So <laughs> did direct service work for the first part of my career after school programming focused in first generation college access and then moved into a national nonprofit soon thereafter, helping scale an idea around first generation college access for low income communities. This happened everywhere from the Bronx to Bluefield, West Virginia. It was a really got to see a lot of what makes the country the country and what poverty looks like in lots of different places in America. And then went from doing that work where I was scaling volunteer programs to the healthcare space right after the ACA passed. So no one was dealing with the intersection of poverty and health at that point in time. And the organization that I was working with then, Health Leads, was, was. And so that organization was growing fast and I was their director of talent and then was running their volunteer programs and putting a ton of infrastructure there. And then met Code 2040 one day when I was helping. I'm also the board chair for a nonprofit named One Degree that helps connect families to the resources they need to survive and thrive. And it's a Yelp for nonprofit and community services. I was helping scout for talent with the CEO. And I walk into the room and I watch a set of three students from the University of Puerto Rico who created in 24 hours an app that did like a translation. So if you spoke to it in Spanish, it came out on the other end in English. And I had just spent two years in the heartbreaking work of getting translation services to families and hospitals and became really clear to me that the next layer of the country was getting built in the cloud. And if none of the architects looked like the communities that I came from, then the same mistakes would happen in the digital revolution that happened in the industrial revolution. So you've been a social justice warrior from the get. Yes. Love that. <laughs> Definitely. So I personally love tech. One of my clients is an ed tech firm. I'm finding tech to be super fascinating. And particularly you are in the belly of the beast, which is to say San Francisco, Silicon Valley. I'm curious about whether you think that technology is actually an entry point and a disruption for folks of color, or does it merely exacerbate white dominant culture? Because I'm thinking specifically about VCs and everything that has been made about folks 
of color access to capital and venture capital. Yeah. I mean, I really believe it is both, right? I think they're, and actually both in equal measure. The thing about tech is that it's going to be all the things that we currently deal with, right? The ways that we interact with money information and each other are really going to be determined by a new digital infrastructure, right? While the world is is very analog, it is moving through like a bullet train, changing all of these things. And in the ways that the country has been run and motivated by white dominant culture and incentive structures, it is currently, yes. And it can just as easily be incentivized and created in a very different way, right? And I think that who gets listened to, who gets money, like all of those things are really big. It's a multi-headed hydra, absolutely. And it is currently not doing its job, but I also, it is not, it's not uniquely not doing its job in integrating, like high-wage workforces in America are not integrated to college degree graduation rates for Black and Latinx people in particular, but in tech, there is problems both with the Black and Latinx community and and for white women and Asian women in particular. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And yet, what's so interesting to me is that we are looking at increasingly fast-growing populations of color that really need culturally responsive tech yeah. to work with and to purchase. Yeah, no question. So, Code 2040 gets its name because the year 2040 is the decade by which there will be more Black and Latinx people than anything else. And we really see it as an economic catastrophe if we cannot make our, what has been a traditionally low-wage workforce, proportionately high-wage to its demographics. So talk to me a little bit about the work of Code 2040 because I mean, I've been in this game a while as well. And I remember, like, call it five years ago, everyone's like, oh, teaching everyone to code is the answer. <laughs> right? Remember that? Yeah. And then it was like, uh, well, not really, because actually, you could probably pay someone in India like pennies on the dollar to do the same thing. What you're really needing to do is actually teach people how to think and how to design. And so I'm just curious, like, what is Code 2040's response? Like, how are we actually going to level this playing field? Yeah, it's a great question. So I think the first thing folks should know is that 20% of all computer science graduates in the country are Black and Latinx, but 3% of Silicon Valley and 5% of the country's tech workforce at large. And that percentage has been pretty stable across, but really it's bounced between 15 to 22% for the last decade. We graduate, and, and boot camp graduates are 24% Black and Latinx, with 14% of that being Black and 10% of that being Latinx. So if we're graduating 56,000 CS grads every year, and 20,000 of them are Black and Latinx, and you have boot camp, which is 20,000 people, and you've got about 6,000 of them that are Black and Latinx, at the end of the day... You've got about 25,000 plus Black and Latinx engineers that are able to go into industry. But what we have seen actually is less than a third of those people are getting jobs in the work, right? And so if you imagine you're telling a kid, go to college, this is a really lucrative career. They go, they do that, they put themselves in debt, and then they apply to high-tech jobs and are rejected at a rate higher than their peers, 
that's sinful, right? And so Code 2040 isn't focused on the training piece. We're focused on the talent that already exists and the structural barriers to entry participation and leadership for people. And how do we create both an exoskeleton through a small set of direct service programs that allows us to retain the talent that is already here and use those interventions to be able to see what are the structural barriers to entry, participation, and leadership? And then we port that to research and evaluation, media strategy, and training so that we are really hitting the industry from a lot of different levels. Like our big goal is that 10% of the industry will be management or trained, organized, or led by a Code 2040 community member by the time we hit 2025. Mm, I love it. And I think that's so important because there one piece of the puzzle is the skill. And then there's a whole other piece that is, I mean, I think the skill is just the tip mm-hmm. of the iceberg. If you're not actually going at it in a really systematic and holistic way, then you're not setting people up for success. So talk to me a little bit about, and this is a great segue, why is it that, I mean, everybody in the world, whether it's tech, nonprofits, corporate, what have you, everyone's talking about DEI <laughs> initiatives, right? Everyone is talking to talk, but not walking the walk. So why, what's up with that? Like, why? Why do DEI initiatives suck so Let me tell you, I have so many opinions. Well, I think first thing I want to do is like define some of the stuff. Like for me, you actually have to define power first when we're talking about DEI. Like, and power is access to money, information, decision-making rights, and reach, right? And so like reach being who is forced to listen to you or who can you pay to listen to you or who can you convene, right? So And for me, DEI is the equitable distribution of power across many lines of difference, right? And what's fascinating to me about the way that DEI is run everywhere, it is like the one initiative in which we are unwilling to say what our end game is, right? Like, we're like, oh, we want to have a more diverse workforce, but we will not talk about what that means. We will not talk both about the benefits or the sacrifices have to be made in order to be able to get there. Like it is the one thing, like I would never run an after school program and be like, Hey, we're going to help a bunch of kids and deliver that as a grant to a funder. We are intending to do and we are unwilling. And I think often because of the history of race in this country to say what we actually think is going on and you cannot make gains on something that you are not actually intentionally trying to create. Right. And then from there, I think it's the processes that we use to get there. Usually the first step in DEI for a company or a nonprofit is, oh, we're going to bring some trainers in to do a training with our team. But no one has identified why they want their team trained. Like, they're like, oh, we want them to get better at diversity. Well, what does that mean? (laughs) That means a hundred different things depending on who you're talking to, right? And like, are we talking about racial equity here? Are we talking about gender equity? Are we talking about the distribution of power across the organization? Like, what is the thing that we are talking about? And I think often it's more heartbreaking in the nonprofit sector because so many of us serve 90% like POC populations 
but do not represent that mm-hmm. at all levels of our organizations. And you start to see organizations that are mm-hmm. snow-capped. So you have a lot of white leadership and senior middle management. And then you have the entry layer to the mid layer of the organization be populated by people of color, usually people that are represented within the community, when you have any level of diversity at all, right? And so I think the clarity, Mm -hmm. the understanding of the processes that you want to use to get to that clarity, and then the ways in which you are going to motivate your team to do what is actually really hard work. You're trying to create internally a microcosm of the world that you want to see, But that microcosm does not exist in the real world. Like America itself is segregated and Mm -hmm. inequitable. And you are trying to create an integrated Mm -hmm. and equitable society within your organization. And that is like, that's hard. There's nothing about that that is easy. I mean, and there are a hundred, I mean, I could go on and on and on about why these things don't work the way they do. No, I mean, listen, it is, it's really, really hard. And I think, you know, as I'm listening to you talk about it, and I just finished an interview with somebody about the access to capital or folks, social entrepreneurs of colors, access to capital. And so much of it is, is about these systems of power, these like closed systems of power. And I think, if you're coming from the outside, you can't sort of force someone to be woke. Do you know what I mean? Like at the end of the day, if you are the CEO of a company, of a firm, et cetera, it's very different to bring in trainers because you like want to be seen as equitable DEI oriented yeah. and actually doing the work, right? And actually like going through the pain of having to give up power or ha- having to do self-examination or coming to grips in terms with things that you've done, said, thought, decided in the past that like yeah. are not that cool and are not equitable and are not setting other folks up for success. And so how do you really compel someone to get to that point where they're willing to take that yeah. step Yeah. I mean, I was just sitting a few months ago, I was sitting at a dinner that we had hosted for a set of tech CEOs to just talk them through how we were seeing the problem. And I was telling them that so much of the information that we've gotten is that in particular in the top five companies that there have, the top five tech companies there are actually pockets of white supremacists in those companies and that they are being, that we know actually at this point in time that they're being funded externally with PR and being given support. Right. And one of the CEOs is like, I am terrified that what you're, that I am going to look at this and that there are actually white supremacists at my company. And I was like, well, there's no way for you to know until you take a stand about this. Right. Like, and I think that, the expectation that the world exists as it does and we see the world existing as it does currently and that the different facets that exist in that world are not going to exist in our companies is ridiculous, right? And now I think when you are attracted to Mm -hmm. a nonprofit workforce, there is a different set of incentives there, right? But I honestly have mm-hmm. seen it be a lot easier for me to have some of these conversations in for-profit organizations than I have in nonprofit organizations. Oh, that's interesting. Why is that, do you think? I think in the nonprofit sector, there's such an attachment to I am a good person, right? That like, I am a good person, so it is not possible that I am acting in a way that is inequitable to people of color. And when you are providing me an example of that inequity, I am so like the the human is so busy trying to 
get the cognitive dissonance in their head together, that they're actually not acknowledging the pain that's in front of them. It becomes like I'm always telling people this is not a feeling problem. This is an operations systems management Mm -hmm. problem. It is only a feelings problem in so much as the Mm. people at my work will have feelings the second that we start doing it. And I have to factor that in to any change management process, right? Of which this is one of the hardest change management processes that we can go through. I think that unconscious bias is so much more difficult to fight than like the clear white supremacist because you're like, okay, (laughs) like I get it. Being sort of a (laughs) New Yorker transplant at this point in my life, I'm like, oh, if you're going to stab me, stab me in the front. At least I know what's coming, right? But to your point, like the unconscious bias, like the well-meaning white person who doesn't see color, I think is so much more difficult to deal with. Oh my gosh, yes. But, you know, and I'll say part of it is like we don't do, even in the unconscious bias training, my big problem with unconscious bias training, number one, it's kind of like pre-K work. Like how do we all agree that there's a problem? And which is fine. Mm -hmm. I think certain layers of people need that work, right? But there are actually different layers of ability Mm -hmm. in your company, right? Like we, at Code 2040, we have this research that we did on Mm -hmm. like the spectrum of advocacy internally. And advocates come in five layers. One is your conscientious colleague. So I'm not going to say anything racist in a meeting and I'm not going to make big hay about it if, you know, we're starting a diversity and inclusion initiative. You've got your affirming advocate. That is like the person that in a meeting will signal boost a person of color and their work will affirm someone from time to time play internal sponsor for them. Then you have number three, which is often where people think is the end, but we think is the middle, an active participant. So that's a person who's like, I'm going to be on the DEI committee. I'm going to be a sponsor for the employee resource group. I'm going to go out and volunteer for a K through 12 volunteer opportunity and helping something like Black Girls Code or the Hidden Genius Project. And then you have the last two layers, which are your leader, which is the person who's identifying the structural barriers that are there and taking them down. And then then you have your challenger, which is at the top of the change spectrum. And that's the person who's organizing people around taking down some of the hardest structural barriers that are there. And as you move up the ladder of advocacy, it is just, there is more risk there at every single letter and risk being defined by threats to your economic, socio-emotional, social, and physical person, right? So like either your job becomes in danger, being accepted by your colleagues Mm -hmm. becomes in danger, you are physically in danger, or your mental health becomes in danger, right? And the higher you go up, the more risk you incur. And often in Mm -hmm. our organizations, we are asking the Mm -hmm. people with the least amount of resources historically to take on the most amount of risk. Oh, yeah, definitely. The the emotional labor of change management often falls on folks of color who are the most harmed by the system. Mm -hmm. And Carla, could we include that in the show notes? Would you be willing to share that with the audience? Sure. We have a test that you can take. Ooh, I love a test. (laughs) Yeah, you a little quiz and then a book that corresponds with the layer that you are in because we think it's really important for people to start to – like I think there is value to all the layers and like really unconscious bias is – 
work uh-huh. that you do at the conscientious colleague level. But by the time you are out of conscientious colleague, you actually need something mm-hmm. else, right? And we're asking our middle managers often to take on the weight of integrating mm-hmm. a workforce, but we both haven't resourced them with the tools for how to do that. And we are like expecting them to intuitively know how to do that. And it's just, it's a mess, right? Yeah. Well, and I would say too, to add on to that point, yeah. you know, all of this work that we're doing around DEI is it's very new, right? Like I, I don't think that there's anybody, I mean, it's an emerging practice. I think we're all kind of on a journey together. Some of us are further along than others, but it's not like we've been talking about this stuff for the last hundred years, right? Like we're all trying to understand. I'm going to push you a little bit because we have actually been talking about it at least since 1968. Right? Like that's when the first diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives started. Right? Yes. I agree. We've been talking about since the civil rights movement, and and frankly, even before that, but I think we haven't as like a a mainstream. As a countrywide conversation. Exactly. Like it hasn't been at the forefront the way that it has become in even the last, I would say, three years. I would, you know, it's been a very recent phenomenon where it's become more of, less of like just a mantra and more of a mandate is I guess what I would say about that. Yeah. Yes. The mandate around it. Yes. I mean, I mean, I think that's a reaction really to the political moment that we are in. Like there are like, if there is Mm -hmm. a massacre of Latinx people happening and you are ill prepared to deal with that moment in your company, then you are coming face to face with the products mm-hmm. of not having done anything to create equity, right? But, you know, like, I think our program has been running mm-hmm. since 2012. And I've been at the organization since 2014. I'm the second CEO. And every summer, without question, mm-hmm. without fail, there's some kind of traumatic moment that happens, right? It was, I think my first year, it was Charleston. My next mm-hmm. year, it was the Pulse nightclub shooting, the year after that, it was all of the police shootings that were happening and being posted online. It was, I mean, it just, it's on and on and on. And I think part of the issue is, yes, as a mainstream corporate conversation, there has been much more focus on this in the last three years, but people of color have been begging for this and talking about it for much longer. And so the difference isn't actually whether or not it's being talked about or there's scholarship about it. It's whether or not white people have been listening. Yeah. Well, and whether or not white people are willing to take action on it, right? Because it's one thing to talk about it and it's another thing to actually do something about it. So Carla, can you tell us a little bit in our last minutes together, I like to give my audience actionable things that they can do to take away. You, you've talked about some of the tactics that you would recommend, but are there other actionable things if a leader's listening to this like, Carla, yes, I'm down. What do I do? Yeah, absolutely. So one, I think, so I'm going to give three examples that are at different points in an employee trajectory. So for at the point of hire, right? One, if I think everyone should be taking out university pedigree or GPA as a requirement for resumes as they are screening them. A workplace, which sounds pretty basic, but a lot of folks still are factoring in whether or not someone went to Harvard, Stanford, MIT, or or the local name brand school 
it's like Harvard, Stanford, MIT, and USC. Harvard, Stanford, MIT, Columbia. Mm-hmm. Harvard, Stanford, MIT. I like Berkeley, right? Absolutely. Like name the geography and what elite is there. <laughs> and so I like one, I think you have to take that out right. and as much as possible, right. make the first round of screening name blind because it's like there are many studies that say that Black and Latinx people who have Black and Latinx sounding names are 50% less likely to get a call back in an interview, right? And so I think the work there is really important. And then when it comes to performance, I would say that for, I would do a, like every employee, looking at where every employee is at, right? Like who are your high performers? Like having some kind of rating system that allows you to know who the hyper performers are, who are the middling performers, and who are the folks on performance evaluation, and then segment that data by race and gender to find out whether or not there are patterns there. And I would do that both with performance Mm. evaluations and exit interviews and MPS scores, right? Because as you are leaving, if the folks that are most disgruntled about their experience Mm, all tend to be people of color, then there is a lot to be learned there. And often there are not enough people of color in many of our organizations in order to be able to have that data be incredibly safe for people. So I just, I think that it is, I think in the places, instead of an employee's relying on employee Mm -hmm. surveys for this, which are important, but I don't think give you the full picture. If you have a small representation of people of color, I would rely on what you're seeing back from performance reviews and exit Mm -hmm. interviews. And then Mm -hmm. the third piece, which is leadership, is that Mm -hmm. I would say you also want to be tracking your promotions over time and who from a trend, from a trending, trend spotting place is getting those promotions. Like I Mm -hmm. grew up in the nonprofit sector and was never able to get a, a promotion at the job, which I had. I got poached over and over again to do bigger jobs at other places, Mm. but the structure in which I was in never would have promoted me. And that is like, I went to a conference not too long ago where I was like a CEO's nonprofit CEO's conference. And I was just noting that all of the CEOs of color had to start their own organizations. They were not promoted in or up into senior leadership. And I think that that is a big fallibility of the nonprofit sector. Mm-hmm. And of I and actually I won't condemn the nonprofit sector exclusively. I would say that this is like an American mm-hmm. high wage work issue. But if you take a look at the data, honestly, any jobs that are 60K and above start to have a fall mm-hmm. off of Black and Latinx people in them. And so we have to be particularly attuned to like why is that happening in our own organizations. Mm-hmm. And which is so interesting to me because the tech play is, to your point, a very viable highway to executive leadership for folks of color. Because really, I mean, there is not like you could be a college kid in a dorm room and start your own company, right? So, but then I think it let us not underplay the obstacles and structural challenges around things like funding and access and who gets to be in the rooms. Yeah, for sure. Well, Carla, this has been super fun slash illuminating slash 
kind of depressing, but but nothing that we didn't already know. And I really appreciate your time. Uh, but I would love to have you another time, and we'll talk about other things. I'm sure there are many things we can talk about. But in the meantime, I'll make sure that your information about Code 2040 is in the show notes, along with this quiz. Y'all love a quiz. I love a quiz. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Thank you. Have a great day. 